0: So who do you think you are? It's an identity shaping, life altering question. Who do you think you are? I mean, how do you introduce yourself? If someone comes up and says, hi, my name is and you say I am and then you start to talk about you. Well, how do you introduce yourself? Now, popular psychology would call something like this self-identity or self-awareness or self-esteem. But but I'm talking about something, something different here over the next few weeks. We want to talk about our identity, who we really are. Because knowing that can change everything. Knowing who we are can change how we act or how we perceive ourselves to want to act. So here's a question I want to start with this week is how would you answer this question? I am. I'm rich. I'm poor. I'm young. I'm old. I'm smart. I'm not. I'm loved. I'm hated. I'm single. I'm married. I was married. I'm divorced. I'm desirable. I'm undesirable. I'm successful. I'm a failure. I'm hopeless. I've got hope. How do you answer that question? I am. Knowing your identity can affect your destiny. So what does it mean to you? It's one of those questions that we ask ourselves, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously. I mean, it starts when we're little. Were you the firstborn? Were you the baby? Were you the middleborn? What was your identity in school? Were you the funny kid? The, the class cut up? Were you the chubby kid? Were you the athletic kid? Were you the smart kid? Were you the nerdy kid? Were you the artistic kid? What names did others give you? What were your nicknames in class? Do your friends have a nickname for you and everybody else had a different one? You get to the teen years and for the teen years, particularly in junior high and high school, often we don't have a clue who we are. You're in a new school, you're in a new environment, you've got new friends, new responsibilities, new authorities. Clothes become more important. Friends are more important than they've ever been or ever will be. You start to focus on your appearance and how you look and how you present yourself. And people start asking questions. Has he had the growth spurt yet? Is he succeeding or failing? What's he going to do with his life? What's the future for him? How is he? Who is he going to be? And you go to college. And all of a sudden in college or the workforce, you've got a chance to completely redefine who you are. People don't know you like they used to. And so you can be someone different. You can try out new personalities. You can try out new things. Sometimes good, sometimes not. Sometimes you run from your tradition and sometimes you sink further into who you were. Graduate and there's an identity crisis there. What do I do now? Do I get a place on my own? Do I move back in with my parents? Do I find a place to work? Or do I go more schooling? Or do I choose a different path? Where will I work? What will I drive? How will I pay my bills? What will I accomplish in life? And then one day you get a job. And before you know it, chances are that job is going to consume you. Where am I going in the company? What am I going to do with it? How am I going to succeed? Is this a long-term career solution? Or is this something just kind of fly by night is this a temporary thing or is this the long-term thing when you meet somebody and you get married and your identity suddenly changes in that relationship you thought you were marrying them to for them to help you become the person you want to be and the problem is they thought the same thing and neither one of you are helping each other you begin to ask questions about your identity with each other woman, sometimes it's particularly difficult. I'm a career-minded, but I've got to put that on the back burner. Or I'm going to have children, but I don't know that I want to do that right now. And for the man, he's trying to figure out what it means to be a husband and to be different and to be loving and caring. then and you have children, everything in your world changes. The center of your world now becomes children because they decide when you eat and what you eat and when you sleep and if you sleep. At least that's what I've heard. Your vacations are different now because you're planning for a family. Your life is organized. All of a sudden, your hobbies, your desires, your friendships, your free time is on the back burner for them. And then one day, the kids get older and they move out. They start to move on and move away. And they start to have lives of your own. And suddenly, you realize what you have built your life around for decades is no longer there. And there's a new identity crisis. Your job ends and you become retired. And as you're sitting there retired, you think, was it all worth it? Did I make a difference? Was it any importance? How do you answer the question, I am? It makes a huge difference in our lives. Here's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the book of Ephesians. And we're going to answer that question, not from our particular points of view, not from your spouse's point of view, not from your friend's point of view, but from the point of view of God. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter one. And over the next few weeks, we're going to answer this question, I am, and we're going to look at it different ways each week, and we're just going to start going through these passages of scripture because the book of Ephesians is an amazing book, in fact, whether you're there or not, I'm just going to read the first two verses because they're kind of the introductory things. And, and they start us off on this book. And it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the saints and believers in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we examine the book of Ephesians, like most biblical uh, letters that we have, it tells us right from the beginning who wrote it. So who wrote this book? Paul. Paul. Paul is one of the most important men in the history of the world. Now, some of you may find that kind of difficult to believe, but it's true. He's one of the most brilliant men in history. He's one of the most important men. He's one of the most successful men in what he did. Presidents and politicians come and they go, but people like Paul have an impact for generations upon generations upon generations. In fact, he's a man that's responsible for the majority of the New Testament. He wrote perhaps 13 books of the New Testament. Now, there's another book in there that some people say he wrote, but that's a book that nobody knows who wrote. book of Hebrews, nobody has a clue who wrote that. But if he wrote that, that would be 14, but we can be pretty sure about 13. And here's the thing that's interesting. There's only one guy in the Bible who wrote more verses than he did, and that was the writer Luke who wrote Luke and Acts, and he was a companion of Paul on his missionary journeys, so Paul was directly impacting what he was writing. When you look at what is written through and around Paul, it is amazing. When you think about his life, it's just as amazing. He was an unbeliever. God didn't believe in this Christian stuff. In fact, he persecuted people. He killed people. He had people killed because they were Christians. Until one day he's walking down the road and God says, Paul, quit doing that. You're persecuting me. He says, who is you? And he says, I'm Jesus. And he falls on his face. He's blind. He seeks out a man. His sight is restored and he begins to follow Jesus that day. And his life is forever changed. We also get this sense in his life that he was not a guy that had a bunch of people around supporting him. One of the amazing things to me about Paul is that he seems alone a lot. I mean, we don't have any evidence. Is there any family? There was a wife, kids. None of that in this time of his life. And yet he continues to write about the amazing love and compassion and grace of God. Paul would go into a city and he would plant a church. And the way he would plant a church is he would go to a place that was friendly to God. And he would begin to preach about Jesus. And he would make people so upset by what he was saying that people would literally try to throw him out. Kill him. Stone him. He's a guy that was shipwrecked, that was beaten, that was stoned, that was thrown overboard, that was in the open sea for a couple of days. Anybody want to do that? I don't like being in an open pool for like two hours. Much less the open sea for a couple of days. He had this amazing life. And in the midst of all that, he goes to this place called Ephesus. And usually he would stay in a place just a couple of weeks, maybe a few days. But he stays in Ephesus for years. He builds a relationship with these people. And as he's sitting in a jail cell, From prison, he writes a letter to them. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, just to give you an idea, this city, Ephesus, is one of the major hubs of the ancient world. A quarter of a million people lived there. It had one of the seven wonders of the ancient world in it. It was a major hub city. And Paul goes into it. And he shakes it up to the point that people get mad at him and they chase him into this arena that would have seated thousands and he begins to proclaim Jesus there. People are mad because he's preaching about Jesus and people are giving up all their evil stuff. They're throwing it away, they're trashing it, businesses are destroyed. And people get mad at Paul, but he just sticks with it and he stays there. And as the church in Ephesus grows, it becomes one of the centers of early Christian mission. And as he begins to write in Ephesians, He starts by talking about who we are. Here's what I want you to understand as you read this, as we read this over the next few weeks. This book was written to people that lived on the outskirts or around a major city in a time of great upheaval in the world when people didn't have a clue they believed spiritually. Kind of like us today. And so this is a book written to us. Now you say, well, how's it written to us? It says it's written to the saints. Right? I'm no saint. You ever heard somebody say that? Why? What do we think of when we think saints? What do you think of? Angels? Okay, if you're brought up in a Catholic background, in Catholic background they have saints, right? Saints are those people that are higher level than everybody else. In fact, uh, in his outline, there are ten steps to becoming saints. First of all, you have to live a really good life, then you have to die. So you don't really get to have an enjoyment of your sainthood. Then he goes through miracles that have to happen, and they have to approve them, and all that kind of stuff. But here's what I want to tell you. That may be what the Catholic Church says, but the Bible says that anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ is a saint. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. The word actually just means chosen ones, holy ones, those who have been called out. And so when he says to the saints, he means those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. So first of all, before, this isn't on the screen, this isn't anywhere. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, take comfort in the fact that first of all, you can say, I am a saint. Now, if you say that to some people, they're going to get mad at you. All right. Like your spouse. I don't know. All right. Don't use that to win arguments. Well, I'm the saint here, all right? So that's how it starts. This is from Paul to us. And then he says this. And if you're, a, if you're a, an English major or somebody that gets riled up about grammar, just ignore the fact that verses 3 through 14 is one run-on sentence. Paul, just like he starts and he can't stop. Okay? Some of us are blessed with the gift of run-on sentences. Paul is one of them. Blessed. Be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. to Be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and his will. To the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He planned in Him. For the administration of the days of fulfillment to bring everything together in the Messiah. Both things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we were also made His inheritance. Predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of His will. So that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to His glory. In Him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation in him when you believe were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance, the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Can I tell you the first thing you are? And this is going to be the first of what we do from now for several weeks. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are in Christ, and the first question you have to ask when you're filling in that blank is, does the phrase in Christ mean anything there for you. In fact, the phrase that is used more than any other phrase in the book of Ephesians is the phrase in Christ or things about being in Christ, a part of his family. Because if you are, then everything that the book of Ephesians tells us about us is true. The first thing that you need to understand in your identity is that if you were in Christ, I am blessed. Amen. Amen. I'm blessed. Now, first of all, I want you to notice that in Scripture, blessing always starts with God and then flows to us. Paul says, bless God. Bless Him because He has already blessed us. Now, what does it mean to be blessed? And I don't mean when you look at somebody and say, bless your heart. Because you really don't, I mean, that means something bad has happened, all right? You ever notice that? Bless his little heart, all right? What does it mean to be blessed? That's good. Somebody else. its a big crowd today. You ought to have some answers coming at me. Forgiven. We're going to talk about that in a minute. What does the word blessed by itself mean? Received a blessing. Steve, we were never allowed to use the word in the definition of the word we were defining, but that's a good... That's a good uh, attempt. To be blessed is to receive a blessing. Thanks. All right. What does it mean to be blessed? Favored. Fortunate. Good. It is definitely not something bad, right? I am blessed. It is a terrible day. You know, that doesn't follow. Blessed means to have something good in your life. To have received something of good. Good importance. And he says right here from the very beginning that we are blessed. In fact, one of the first things we find in the whole book, in the book of Genesis, after he makes the man before sin enters the world, it says God bless them. As we get into into Ephesians chapter one, we're going to unpack the densest verse in the whole Bible Verses three through 14 are just dense. I mean, I could preach for like three hours. Is that all right? No, I got one. No way. We've got some yeehaws and amens and some no ways today. I mean, it is full of stuff. We could talk about it here, and we're not going to do this, but we could talk about the fact that Scripture talks about the Trinity here, that it is God who ordained and who set forth into motion our salvation. It was Jesus that paid for our salvation. It is the Holy Spirit that seals our salvation. That's all in these verses. You could talk about the depth of the words that Paul uses in his praise and honor and glory to God. In fact, you could argue that this whole thing is a doxology to God, that we are the peripheral issue here, we are just the secondary concerns, and that this is a great worship moment between Paul and God. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about us, because you know what I like talking about? You do too. Don't act like you don't like doing that. Right? He says we're blessed. This verse is 202 words, one sentence of Paul talking about how God has amazingly blessed us. And the first thing he says is that we're blessed to be in Christ. Who has blessed us in Christ? It's our identity. For those who are in Christ, blessing in Christ is everything that we need. Over and over again in the book of Ephesians, he's going to say, In Christ. You are in Christ. You are blessed in Christ. It is in Christ that this happens. What he's saying is the first blessing is the absolute greatest. Because the greatest gift you can ever give someone is yourself. God is saying that he, Paul, is reminding us that God has given us him in Christ. He tells us that God has given us God. He says, blessed be the God who has given himself to us. God's given us himself. I know sometimes you want other stuff. I want a car that runs. I want a spouse that doesn't. Sometimes we say, God, these are the things I want. I want this or that. Can I have this? This is what I really need. A car is great. A spouse is great. Health is great. Job is great. Money is great. But the greatest thing you have ever been given is Jesus. Blessed are we in Christ. In fact, nothing else in the rest of the book matters if that's not true. And if it's not true in your life, then nothing else in the book matters. If you're not a follower, a believer in Jesus Christ, you are living this world without the one who is designed to get you through it. Now, so you say, I don't, I don't feel that blessing. I mean, you hadn't seen my bank account, Pastor. You hadn't seen the work and job performance review I got last week. You hadn't talked to my kids lately. I don't feel the blessing. But look what it says Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing? Where? Where? In the heavens. In Christ, in the heavens. You know, I was. They didn't know that. They didn't know the direction I was going in the sermon today, other than I was starting in Ephesians. But it's good that we sang all that stuff about heaven, right? Because Scripture teaches us this is not all that we will ever see. Aren't you glad about that? Amen. If you're a believer in Jesus, here, hang with me for a minute. If you're a believer in Jesus, it says that you are blessed in the heavenlies. That means there is stuff waiting for you that you cannot imagine. And if that's true. Then this is the closest you will ever be to hell. Now, the converse of that is this. If you're somebody that's not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is as close as you'll ever get to heaven. That's a big difference, right? You can say a lot of good things a lot of good things about this world, but it is not heaven. He says, You're blessed. We have this to look forward to, but God wants us to enjoy it now as well. And knowing that we have been blessed in the heavenlies gives us the opportunity to focus on what we have been blessed with here and now. He chose us to be holy and blameless in His sight. Now, you're going to get some people fired up because what you have said is, I'm a saint, I'm blessed, and I'm holy. Try that at the dinner table, all right? I know you. Now, it doesn't mean that we're perfect. In fact, what it means is kind of opposite of that. It is that God has said, because we are followers in Him, that we have already been given the position as if we are holy. And what Paul says is, if you've already been looked at as if you're holy, because of what Jesus Christ has done, why don't you act like it? Be set apart different. Holy just means that we have been set apart for God for a divine purpose. He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for. Let me say a quick word about the word predestined there, because there have been wars fought and books written about this verse. I will tell you this. I don't have a clue what it fully means. All right. Are you okay with that? I hope so, because I am. All right. Here's what I know from Scripture, though. I know that it says a lot to us in the scripture about God giving us the opportunity to respond to his grace and mercy and all of that. So I don't believe in any way that God has gone down the line and done a duck, duck, goose, save, save, not. I don't think that's happened in any way. I believe He steps forward. He has given it as His Son. He has done everything possible before saying to us, it is now your choice to show us His love and mercy and His desire is for all to be saved. But it still leaves a little bit in our court and He lets that happen. He could if He wanted to. He's God. He can do whatever He wants. But I think Scripture teaches that He gives us a little bit of responsibility in responding to Him. It says that He predestines, and people get fired about the word predestined, but the good part of the verse is after that. He has predestined us to be adopted as sons of God Most High. That's good news, right? Some of you are looking at me like, it's not good news, that's good news. Do you realize that 40% of kids tonight will go to bed without a father in the house with them? For the first time in the nation's history, the majority of children born to women ages 30 and under are born out of wedlock. Many of those kids never had a dad. Some of you didn't have a dad or your dad wasn't a very good example. Maybe he's a guy that abandoned you emotionally or physically or abused you emotionally or physically. That's why the whole concept of God being our father is incredibly important. You know what it means to us when it says that He has adopted us into His family? It means that we have a home. We have a place. We have someone to whom we can run. We have a family. I love it when we all get together as a church family. I love our two services. I love the dynamics that are there. I love how God is growing both of those places. The two differences in style. I love that. I love the people that are in both. But it's good every now and then to get together. Amen? To remind ourselves of the family that we have here in Christ. Now there are parts of the family that we see a lot. But there are parts of us that we don't see very much. And it's good to see the family that are here. And the only thing that links us all together is that God is our dad. An amazing, amazing thing. That's part of the reason that Christians, and it was mentioned in the video we saw, that that Christians have built the largest and the best orphanage that has kind of ever existed. And the network has always kind of been there. Christians have been more involved in adoption than any other group in the history of the world. Because we ourselves are people that have been adopted by our Heavenly Father. It's important because it reminds us that God is not some spiritual force. He's not some spiritual kind of distant being. He is a dad. And He is with us. There's something about watching a child that is an orphan, homeless, without mom and dad, be adopted by a family that loves them. People ask me sometimes, what kind of cemented in your heart that Brazil was a place that God was going to send you on a regular basis? And Most of you in the room know that we've been to Brazil several times as a church. I've been several times now. First trip I ever went to was 1998, and we worked at an orphanage. There was a little girl there named Isabella. And Isabella had been put in a trash can in an alleyway in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. They don't know who her parents are. They found her in a trash can. The state didn't know what to do with her. And in Brazil, when the state doesn't know what to do with them, there are many. Christian organizations around and they just take them to them and say, here, you do something with them. Isabella was a part of a group of about 17 kids that got dropped off the week before we went to Brazil. We had planned our whole week for 70 kids. We got there, there were 91 because the state just brought a bus and said, here are some more, take them. So I was there in Isabella's second week of being at the orphanage. One of the moms said, there are some of these kids that take years to come to a place where they appreciate what has happened. They said, Isabella is not one of those. She immediately has clung to us. Well, that week, I became the target of Isabella's humor. She watched me play one game of soccer. Of which I am not a star athlete or mediocre or any good. And we were going against nine-year-old kids that are really good. That's all they play all day long. And one kid in particular fired a shot that was going into the goal, and my head happened to get in the way. And so I don't know what they called me all week, but every time they looked at me, they patted their head. And Isabella, on the last day, looked at me with her eyes, and she got an interpreter She's like waiting for an interpreter. And she said, thank you for showing me what love is. God has taken us in out of the trash heap and has loved us. It doesn't matter what your family's like. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what has gone on. He loves us. We are blessed. Blessed as we adopted as his sons. And then he starts rattling off other stuff. We ain't got time to go into everything. He's blessed us with redemption. Now, in our society, we talk about addiction. We talk about having trouble with drugs or alcohol or, or Internet stuff. They're, they're addictions that we have to be free from. In their day, they talked about it as slavery. And the only way that you were taken out of slavery was to be bought out of slavery. And he says, Jesus Christ has bought you out of slavery, the slavery of your sin with his blood. He talks about the blessing of forgiveness. I mean, all of us have to be honest in this place that we are people that make mistakes, but more than that, we are people that have at the center of who we are an evil part that does things that we know aren't right. It says because of what Jesus Christ has done, we are forgiven of our trespasses. When you sin, you can do one of several things with your sin. You can push it under the carpet and hope it goes away. You can deny it ever happened. You can blame somebody else, or you can accept it and get the forgiveness that comes from God. We've been forgiven by him. More than that, it says that we have been given grace, which means not just that our past has been wiped away, but that we have given stuff that we don't deserve in the least. You ever make your kids work for something to get something they want? Absolutely, right? And how else do you get housework done at the house, right? Dangle that carrot out there. Aren't you glad God doesn't make us work for the blessings He gives us? We can never deserve it. Then this is the picture I love. He says all of that. Listen, I mean, just think about that. We've been adopted. We've been forgiven. We've been bought back. We have grace from God. We are His. We are holy. We are set apart. We are in Christ. We are brand new in Him. And then he says, and if you're a follower of mine, the Holy Spirit has sealed you. You don't have to worry about it ever again. Sealed. You ever use Ziploc bags? Right? Why do you use Ziploc bags? It seals something in, right? You ever taken a Ziploc bag and just to see if it was sealed, kind of dump it over and see? Now, some of you are not afraid of that, all right? I'm talking about the good ones. I'm not talking about the knockoff brands that split open when you do that, all right? Scripture talks about seal, and seal there meant a couple of things, but here's what it basically meant. It, It wasn't just like a Ziploc. It has been sealed, although there is some of that in the idea. The idea there is... That in their day, a seal was when they would get wax really, really hot on a document. And he would have a personalized uh, signature or note or symbol. And he would press that seal into the hot wax. And it identified whatever the seal was on as his. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit has sealed us as his. Never to be taken away. Isn't that good stuff? I mean, I I am blessed. I mean, that sounds like a great thing. I'm blessed. But when you think about it, I am blessed in Christ. I am blessed with forgiveness. I am blessed with redemption. I am blessed with holiness. I am blessed with God sealing me. I am blessed as adopted sons of Jesus Christ. I am blessed. And then he adds this at the very end. To the praise of his glory. The reason that we have been blessed is so that we might return in favor our blessing to God and serve Him completely. I heard a description this week of the differences in how we approach our blessings compared to the difference between cat theology and dog theology. How many of you are cat people? Okay, I'll be praying for you the rest of the week, All right. How many of you are dog people? Amen. Amen. All right. Here's the difference between cat theology and dog theology. If you think about a cat and a dog, they both have great owners. They, they spoil them. They give them stuff. They do stuff for them over and over again. Food is always there. It's an extravagance. They have that nice soft bed for them. They, they rub them. They pet them. They take care of them. They get all their everything they need from their vet. Everything's good. And so when you think about how they're thinking about it, the cat looks at it and goes, I must be a really good cat. To get taken care of this like this, I'm fancy, I am good, I am a great cat that I am taken care of this well by my owner. Where the dog looks at it and says, I've got a really great owner. Takes care of me, loves me, does for me what I need to have done. There are a lot of people that are cat theology all the blessings, all the things that happen in life, I must be really good. It must be about me. I want to be a church that's dog theology. Amen? You can quote that on Twitter if you want to, All right. I want a church with dog theology. I want a church that looks at how much we have been blessed and says we serve a great God. Amen? Amen? This morning, if you're here, first of all, we're glad you're here. If you're a part of our church, part of our family, it's always good to see you. If you're a guest, maybe somebody brought you, invited you. Maybe you just kind of found us and they're here. We want you to know we're glad that you're here. But I want you to answer that question. John, I want you to go back to the slide before that. This is the question I want you to answer. And if you can't put the words in Christ or follower of Christ in the midst of that blank, then you need to do business with that today. If you're somebody that can't answer that question in the affirmative about Christ, then you need to work with that today. Would you bow with me as we pray?